Good morning, Three Rivers Church. Man, I want you to look around and I want you to, to take note. Um, one of the reasons we see empty seats frequently, more frequently than we used to, is because we believe in multiplication. I think it's important to draw our attention to this this morning because I needed to be drawn uh, to it this morning. As we just planted a church in Cartersville, uh, last year we planted another campus down the street, and God willing, we'll plant more. And these empty seats are continued opportunities for us to make disciples. And so, I want you to look around and pay attention. The reason those seats are empty is because we've multiplied. not that awesome? That's really good news. Yes, thank, thank you, Ken. Yes, that's right. We multiplied. We've made disciples. And as God builds His kingdom, the kingdom multiplies. And so, we, we set out another campus. We just planted another church in Cartersville. And so, this is good news. What that means is... Your job is very secure. You understand? Like, there's lots to do. Right? There's nowhere for you to go but to continue to make disciples. And this is really good news. And so I want to encourage you with that to remember that we all have a task. And that task Jesus gave us is to disciple the nations. And churches like ours who take that seriously, who work in hard places, who do hard things, who talk about domain engagement, um, we're going to continually be multiplying. That's a good thing. And so we want to continue to push that and train. Just by by way of, of little simple announcements, because this directly affects me. Um, next fall, we'll begin our next process where uh, we train pastors and church planters. And so um, as I put on the announcement page this week, I'd love to see some ladies pop through that. Uh, I want to see our guys continue to step into that. And so if you're interested in that, if you uh, if you want to read, report, start a radical life group, be willing to explore the world Short term and long term, and uh, and be willing to give your time. It's all about the finish. Come see me, email me, and uh, we'll get you involved in that internship next fall. Okay, that's how we multiply. We train leaders, we send them out, we multiply. And we're going to keep doing that. So if you're interested in that, come see me. Okay, you good? Y'all like you're not happy? This is really, really, really good to be here and to be continue to be trained in the good news. 16 verses, the whole story of the Bible in 16 verses. Today it's Genesis 49, 10. And we're talking about Judah the king. Judah the king. Now remember, we're looking at 16 verses that tell us the storyline of the gospel through the whole Bible. And so we're not diving real deep into these passages. We're hitting the surface and moving on. As we finish, we're going to pop back through and study through the book of Genesis in great detail. But we're looking at the signposts as we move through that point us to the good news of the kingdom of God. And so we remember God created a kingdom and he is the king. But he made human beings to represent him in that kingdom. Adam and Eve, our parents, rejected this call which led to sin and death. But God promised, God made a promise that he would defeat the serpent through the offspring of the woman who is also the offspring of Abraham. Through Abraham's family and specifically Judah's royal offspring, the covenant blessings would come to the world. Judah is an interesting character. And we're going to draw some conclusions along the way, and particularly at the end, they're going to help us to obey what we learned today. But I want to start out by reminding you that God blesses Judah with this statement in Genesis 49.10. Through Jacob... Judah being the fourth son of lazy-eyed Leah, whose first two sons were killed by God for being evil, and then whose twins came by his daughter-in-law. So that Judah is both father and grandfather of his children. God blesses him with Genesis 49.10. There, there, we're going to draw some application from that, but just real one quick funny one. Judah's the founding member of the state of Alabama and first Auburn graduate. <laughs> got to be. Got to be. Father and grandfather of his own children. And, and, and so, yeah, boo, all you Auburn people. Yeah, that's all right. When you become the preacher, you can say what you want to, so just go through the training. You can make fun of Georgia. Go dogs. But it is what it is, right? But God blesses this guy, Judah. This, this, not the firstborn, but the fourthborn of the unloved mother. 
whose first two kids were killed by God because they were evil. And then his sons and grandsons are by his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Here's what God says about Judah, that guy. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Wow. That's not what I would say about Judah. I would say what I just said about him being a founding member of the state of Alabama, an Auburn graduate, right? But that's not what God says. You see, we, me, us, all of us, we choose most likely to succeed when we graduate high school, right? You got your yearbooks, you can plop back through your yearbook and you, who's most likely to succeed? And we build that idea upon some standard that I would argue is far from biblical, But God doesn't work that way. God chooses the least likely to succeed. To be the father of kings. And in so doing, God does this amazing thing where He captivates us with His work in history. Because I would not have chosen Judah. He's not on my most likely to succeed list. And when God does things like that, He captivates us. He captivates me. That may not be captivating to you. You may be like, okay, whatever. But when I see God take guys like that and bring kings from them, it gives great hope to this person. And when God captivates us with His work in history, He gives great hope to the world that being from the most stain-free and being the most cultured is not necessarily God's way, nor is it the way to find favor with God. You see, God gives us great hope here in guys like Judah that might does not always come from right. I'm sorry, that might does not always make right. And that the meek and sometimes the flat-out backward will truly inherit the earth. See, God has built this theme. He's built this storyline into history. This is the way God works. And Scripture captures God's work in history like this to do a few things. He, he reveals His glory. He puts on display His glory. He, secondly, causes us to trust Him because when we see God do great things like that through people like Judah... It allows me to trust a little deeper in switching rides at Disney World. Because reality, no challenge we face right here in Disneyland where we live is a real challenge perspectively to the rest of the world. You know what I'm saying? We prayed last week for our team in our capital city of our people. Nobody's going to come to our guest house and behead our guard and take our people captive. Nobody's going to do that to you today. So some of the challenges we face perspectively are not that big of a deal. And so when I read stories like Judah and what God does in history with men like Judah and his family, I can trust Him that in my little part of Disneyland, God's got me. It's going to be okay. And third, he does this great work of bringing us back to him with this good news of his king and his kingdom who atones for the rebellion and the breaking of the curse and setting all things right again. But remember, as neat as it is that God uses Judah, there's only one hero in the Bible, and that hero is Jesus. So, and this is important. If you're looking at the notes, they're on the, the blog, MitchJolly.com, and they're the very first post from today. This is italicized and underlined. I want you to get it. Therefore, as we read the Bible, we dare not moralize the accounts of people or their lives. No doubt we can learn moral lessons from these people. But moral lessons are external behavior modifiers. God has to fix us at the heart level, and He works from the inside out. He does this by showing us Himself at work in the lives of the least likely, like Judah. It's just interesting how it's so easy to make moral lessons out of people in the Bible when the point is not moral modification. 
Remember, there's only one hero, Jesus. The rest of these guys are morally flawed severely. So the point isn't to draw moral lessons from them. Very important that we get that. It's not that we can't learn a moral lesson. It's just not the main point. But what God does is He shows us Himself at work in the lives of the least likely to succeed. It shows us Him making covenant. It shows us that He keeps covenant. And then He woos us to Him to transform us, not simply make our behavior better. So the point of Judah this morning is not to look at Judah and go, geez, Judah was a great, upright, moral man, because he's not. And we would do that with David, right? We want to make David a moral lesson. David was not a moral man. If we only focus on one part of David's life, that's kind of cool. The only problem is we can't focus on just one part of his life because there are some other glaring problems. The point of David, the point of Judah, the point of Abraham is that we see the God who made all things good. And was rebelled against. The point is we see Him taking the least, making covenant, keeping covenant, and then wooing us to Himself to transform us, not just simply make our behavior better. You see, we're to see the people, we're to know their lives, and then be reconciled back to the God who is at work in them, crushing the head of the serpent and doing so with the offspring of the woman. Ultimately, what makes the people of the Bible, as well as you and I, part of that serpent-crushing family is the one that is being pointed to, the one being alluded to, the one who is typed forward, the one who is patterned in the Old Testament. And that is the offspring, the one of the woman who did crush the serpent's head through his life, death, burial, resurrection. And that is the hero Jesus. So, what do we see in Judah's story? What do we see there that points us to... This one. We've got a few points we want to draw out of Judah's life. Number one, I want to point us to Judah's past. Point us to Judah's past. And that is the patriarchs, the fathers of his family. Because in all the dysfunction, God was working to preserve a line by grace. You see, God doesn't work based on a stellar lineage. God works by grace. And we hit this at length last week, so I'm not going to go back and and, and plow that furrow again. But one of the points that God makes to us in the text is God doesn't work by earning or by perfection lived out. God takes the dysfunctional and He makes it functional. And He does it without our help. In other words, He does it by grace. God works by grace. By the way, just in case you don't know what grace is, grace in the Bible is always presented as the power of God. Not simply the kindness of God. When you read about the grace of God, I need you to recognize that God is speaking about His power to work in kindness, but also in rescue. Because God isn't just kind. He's also a God who rescues us out of trouble. I'm sitting in the back of a cab in Quetta, Pakistan, and in a really bad day, and God puts me in the cab of a pastor. How does that happen? Apart from God being a rescuer. Right? That was grace at work, powerfully rescuing His people. And so in Judah's past, we need to see that in all the dysfunction, God was working to preserve a line by grace. Let me take a look. Remember, God shows Abraham. He looked at the life of Abraham, and Abraham's life isn't real stellar because, you remember last week we looked and saw that God took Abraham before he saved him, Genesis 12, called him out, Genesis 15, he saved him. And what does Abraham go and do on two different occasions? He tells a lie about his wife because she's pretty, afraid that they might hurt him for her, and says, She's his sister. And two different guys take her into his house on two different occasions, putting her at risk for all manner of ungodly things. That's Abraham. Not a real good patriarchal leader. But Abraham tries to rush God's methodology, right? 
God promises a child. He's going to give him and Sarah a child. And they can't figure out how God could work this out. How, how She's incapable of having children. They're old. We don't understand how this is going to happen. So Sarah and Abraham devise a way to do it themselves. And Sarah says, take my servant and have a baby with her. That'll be the child. So they have Ishmael. Lo and behold, 25 years after the case, God gives them Isaac. So Abraham really isn't a stellar example, is he? Abraham fails repeatedly. But the promised child, Isaac, surely he's the one, right? He's going to be the great example. Oh, no. Isaac's not perfect either. Isaac has his problems, multiple problems. Jacob, God bless him. The tent dwelling, hanging out with the lady, cooker boy. As opposed to Esau, the hairy hunter. Jacob's name even means schemer. And what does he do? He schemes his brother out of his birthright. And then spends a lot of years in exile, finding his wife, working for his scheming father-in-law to earn a wife. And then his father-in-law switches them on marriage night. And like, if you're anybody reading that story, you got to be going, dude, how can you not know? I mean, how much did you have to drink before this? What is wrong with you? And the next thing you know, he's got Leah, but that's not who he worked for. He wants Rebecca. And what does his scheming father-in-law do? No, 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 no. Work for me more years and you can have her. Okay. And then this whole time he's scheming to take away from his father-in-law. That, that's Judah's family. That's his line. That's his heritage. It's not pretty. But what we see in these stories is that God in all of His might works by grace, not by what you earn. This is really good news for you and I today. It's not that God chooses to use the most likely to succeed. God in His grace preserves a line to take us to Christ and He does so by grace, not by their effort. This is good news for us. Second observation I want you to note is the story of Judah takes place with the background of his little brother, Joseph. And the story of Joseph is all about God's promise to preserve his people, including Judah. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Genesis, Genesis 37 through 50 is about Joseph. And we know the story of Joseph. Hopefully you've read your Bible and you know the story of Joseph. But an interesting thing happens. Genesis 37 introduces Joseph. You familiar with the story? And Joseph's the little brother, right? And and he's he's the kid that's really loved by his father. And this kid starts having dreams about his family serving him. And foolishly, he tells his brothers this story. And the brother's like, heck no! Who do you think you are, you dreamer? And so his brothers are out doing business. His father goes, check on your brothers, take them some stuff, go out. And he goes out and finds them. They see him coming and go, hey, I've got an idea. Here's this dreamer. Let's kill him. And then we get chapter 38, which is a really weird chapter in the narrative of Genesis. Because it's Joseph and then Judah and Tamar. A really weird R-rated story right after the introduction of Joseph. And then chapter 39 picks back up with the story of Joseph. And you read that and you go, why is that in the Bible? Like if you've read Genesis, you have to ask that question. Why is that in the Bible? Why couldn't you, God, couldn't you have just continued on with the story of Joseph? Why'd you have to interrupt this amazing rescue story with this weird story of Judah and Tamar? I didn't need that. Because Joseph is the backdrop of God keeping His promise to preserve His people, particularly His choice of Judah. The whole story of Joseph is not there for Joseph. The story of Joseph is there to serve as a backdrop to see God rescue one undeserving person out of all of them to be the one through which He brings David, through which He brings Jesus. So God introduces us to Joseph and then He throws Judah in the mix. And then He goes back to the story of Joseph so you don't forget. And if you notice, through the story of Joseph, who was the one who suggested they not kill Joseph? Judah. 
Who was the one who volunteered to go back down to Egypt after they sold him some traders taking him to Egypt? Who volunteered to go back down there in the place of his brothers and represent the rest of the family to Joseph, who he didn't know it was Joseph yet? It was Judah. You see, while the serpent was trying to kill the offspring of the woman... God preserved innocent Joseph so he could save his guilty brothers, particularly Judah. And there's a gospel pattern even in that. Do you see it? One innocent son of a father taking the brunt of punishment in the place of the guilty in order to save the guilty while ascending to the throne of authority. That's Joseph's story. Jesus, the innocent and perfect son, takes the punishment due the guilty in order to save the guilty as he ascends to his rightful throne as king. But we said this story is about Judah, right? Yes. And this is why this strange story of Judah and Tamar is inserted right after Joseph is introduced. God interrupts the story of Joseph with this strange story to introduce for us the reality that God is going to crush the serpent. And He's going to do so with the absolute worst in history. Why? Well, here's a few reasons why God does this. One... Or if you're looking at the blog, it's A. We get to see God work by grace, not effort or moral goodness. We've hit that already. B, we get to see that there is nothing God can't overcome or work through for good. This is real important. Because the reality is, and I'll hit this a little more a little later on, it is arrogant to say God can't use me for X, Y, and Z purposes. It is the epitome of arrogance to say that God can't overcome these things for good when in fact the entire pattern of Scripture is God is an overcoming God who chooses the least and overcomes all those things for His purposes. And we get to see that pattern that should build our faith. C, or number three, we get to see that God saves the bad, that is Judah and his brothers, through the good, Joseph, and get to see the pattern of the gospel. D, or four, we get to see that God preserves His people through the curse of the fall and keeps His promise to Abraham. Therefore, we know God will preserve His people. This is a huge thing. This is huge. That God preserves His people because He made a promise to Abraham. And when we see God preserve His people, we recognize that God is also going to preserve us. And therefore, it continues to build our faith. Listen, this is one of the reasons we tell you, read your Bible. This is why we provide you with a Bible reading plan. It's because we want you in this thing, reading, paying attention, learning how to see the gospel, learning how to see the pattern, learning how to see the type, recognizing the stories, not for moral benefit, but to see the pattern of God working in His people, that He preserves His people. This is why as Christians, we have great hope to obey Jesus and take the gospel to the nations because God will always preserve His people. There's no story you can point to in the Bible that says anything other than God will take care of His people. This is one of the reasons last Sunday night we're at Restoration Rome. We looked at Matthew 6, 33, to seek the kingdom first. This entire pattern that we have in the Bible and Jesus teaching us, come after the kingdom, is so important. It's because God has given us everything in Scripture. Everything. Romans 15, 4, as as an illustration, as a story, as historical reality, to know that God is at work and therefore we don't have to seek our salvation. We don't have to seek our preservation. We don't have to do any of that. We seek His kingdom first. He'll give us the food. He'll give us the clothes. He'll give us what we need. Everything written there should encourage us to be crazy, radical followers of Jesus. But that's not what our culture teaches us, is it? Our culture teaches us to seek all those other things first. Take care of yourself. Preserve yourself. Value safety over risk. That's not God's kingdom. As a matter of fact, we learn through Judah and this story here that God preserves His people. And let me just say this. There's nothing you can do to thwart God's purpose. Example, Judah. Not even his escapade with Tamar can thwart God's purpose. Why? Because God's purpose isn't dependent on me or you. 
God's purpose is fully in His hand. Remember what we learned last week about Abraham? Who passed through the halves of the animals? Did Abraham pass through taking part of that upon himself? No, God alone passed through those covenant pieces, taking upon Himself the responsibility to keep the covenant all alone, on His back, by Himself, with no help from Abraham. Listen, guys, that's really good news. That's why we can seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. It's because we don't have to keep the covenant. God keeps it for us. God preserves His people. This is why you can't stamp out the church. This is why you can't stop the church. The church is the vehicle for completing the Great Commission. It's the vehicle for engaging domains of society. The church is the way. Now this is very important. This is not in your notes. This is free, okay? Totally free. This is why you see the culture combating the life of the church so much. Because the serpent doesn't want the people of God to be connected with the people of God, but to be isolated from the people of God. Therefore, everything begins to invade, take over, and we begin to treat the church as though the church were third or fourth on the list. The reality is God preserves His people. His people are covenanted in the life of the church. And we begin to ignore that, and that becomes... Third, fourth, fifth, and sixth, we are denying the fact that God is a God who keeps His promises His people and that we are, in fact, those people. The church gathers because God has put us as one unified in Himself, preserved by Himself, together, moving on mission together. The church is vital. Because it is the people of God that God preserves. And when we fail to put it in its right place, we fail to recognize God is the one who keeps His people. I would say this to you. This is again free, not in your notes. It is no sacrifice to be present with the people of God. It is no sacrifice. It, in fact, should be the greatest joy in the life of the believer because in that community is where we see God at work in each other. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but you rarely see God at work in your own life because we can't see the forest for the trees, right? You know that old saying, you can't see the forest for the trees because you're so caught up in the forest that you don't recognize the trees? You know, one of the reasons God put us in community together as the people of God is so we can look at our brothers and sisters and see the work of God and be encouraged that God is at work in them. And you know why you need them? is because they can look at you and see God at work in you and tell you that. Amen. And God gives us all these amazing historical references of Him being at work in the likes of Judah. <laughs> and if God can do that in Judah, Right? Finally here, in the little observations here, why God is working this way, E, or 5, E or number 5, we can get a glimpse into why Paul would write things like Romans 8, 28. Remember, Paul's preaching from his Bible, the Old Testament. And now we know why Paul will write things like Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works together for the good of those who love Him are called according to His purpose. Why? Because that's all He's ever done in history. <laughs> so, no wonder Paul would write that. Paul's thinking, Adam and Eve, Abel, Seth, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. God works together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose because that's what He does. And our basis for that is right here in the story of Auburn graduates like Judah. Right? Sorry, Cone. I ran that by him before I said that. I, was like, I told him I was probably going to say that. He's like, okay, I'm ready. Judah, the Lion King. Judah's the Lion King. In Genesis 49.10, Judah is chosen... As the royal offspring that the nations will be blessed through. Again, Genesis 49, 8 to 10. If you've got your Bible, you can flip over there with me. Genesis 49, 8 to 10. I'm going to do a very quick running commentary on some cool things in this passage. Because the situation is, Jacob is about to die. 
He has been rescued, he and his family. Because God in his grace, by the way, read Psalm 105. Psalm 105 is biblical commentary on the history of these people. And when you read Psalm 105, it's going to say some cool things like God sent them, God sent Joseph to Egypt. Which is why Genesis 50-20 is important. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And the key in that exposition is what is it? You meant it. What? Going to kill me? Rescued by Judah? Sending me to Egypt? You meant it for evil, but God meant it. What's it? Their evil intentions. God meant it for good. Which is why the author of Psalm 105 will say God is the one who sent Joseph to Egypt. Because why? God was at work. God was at work in them and He was at work in Judah. Judah will be the royal offspring that the nations will be blessed through. So Jacob, who is saying these things right here, has his sons come to him. And as he is dying, he speaks a blessing over each one. And you read some of these and you go, geez, that's interesting. Or, ooh, why did he say that? But our focus is on Judah because he sets Judah apart. Genesis 49, 8-10, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Who's the one tribe that survives the conquests of the Assyrians? Judah. Who's the one tribe that thwarts by God's power the Assyrians? Judah. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Verse 9, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. And I put a little, little parenthetical note here. The scepter and staff are symbols of authority. In other words, Judah, authority will never depart from you. Nor the staff from between his feet. That is, he would have a line of successors that will come after him until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Wow. So what have we learned about Judah here? There's a few things and then we're going to wrap it up. What have we learned about Judah? Number one, Judah's an intercessor. Judah is the one who stands between his family and those who have authority over his family. Though reckless in his behavior with Tamar, Judah showed firm resolve in taking personal responsibility for Benjamin's safety when his father sent them back down. And he acted as an intercessor for his brothers before Joseph. Can anybody think of a descendant of Judah who's going to act as an intercessor between God and man? Jesus. Yes. Judah reminds us of grace. Judah's a reminder that God doesn't save by my goodness, but by His grace alone. Which is why He keeps His covenant with me even when I don't keep it. We learn Judah is chosen as a royal line to keep God's plan of kingdom in place. You see, Adam and Eve were to be a king and queen of sorts over creation. God promised Abraham that he would be a great nation, in essence, the head or king over a nation of people. God weaves this truth of his rule over and through his people with the promise of a kingdom that is and is to come in full and come in the future. God chose a king and a kingdom as his means of making clear who he is and who we are. This is very important, so don't hate me, don't be mad at me, don't, don't call me names. God did not choose a democratic style of rule in which subjects get to be little sovereigns. God chose monarchy to make clear to the world that the presence of a human king is to be a reminder of God who is the king, who is the loving ruler over his whole domain, and we are subject to do his bidding in love. God's even at work in government. This this is why we read Romans 13 and we talk about domains of society. God established government and He did so on purpose. Government just isn't here willy-nilly. 
God gave us government to restrain the curse of the fall. And in government, God displays something of His justice and His kingship. He chose king and kingdom to be a display of who He is and who we are. But our worldview as Westerners says we're little sovereigns who determine our own end. That's how we think. And then we translate that onto God and His kingdom. That somehow I'm a little sovereign and I'm the captain of my ship and the master of my soul. I make ultimate decisions that determine what God does. That's not how God gave it to us. He's king, we're subjects. And this is offensive to a Westerner. We, we get offended at that. That somehow we, we put up walls of defense and God's not like that. The only problem is this thing. Which says that's exactly what He does and who He is and who we are. So I'm going to throw a little, I'm going to get a little heavy here. And I mean intellectually heavy, so pardon me because this is, this is important. One of the, one of, this is huge. I'm going to help you here. I'm trying to be very careful, not get too heady, but I'm going to get heady for a second. So is it okay? We're light in attendance. You mind if I get heady for a second? Watch. Listen. One of the great defenses against atheism is an ontological defense. Ontos means being. Logical, a word about. So, a word about being. Okay? One of the great defenses against atheism is an ontological defense. We reason from existence of ideas and concepts. The guy who put this forward is a guy named Anselm of Canterbury. Anybody ever heard of Anselm? Alright, two of us. Awesome. I'm about to teach you. As Anselm of Canterbury reasoned, if it exists in the mind, it must exist in reality. Otherwise, where did the thought of its existence come from? That's the whole ontological argument for the existence of God. Not to get too complicated, but the fact that mankind can imagine a perfect kingdom and a perfect king and our wildest fantasies. And every little girl has a concept of a perfect king and a little kingdom and a carriage ride and all things are all good. And even guys are that because we want to be King Arthur. But the fact that we can imagine a perfect kingdom with a perfect king in our wildest fantasies is because that kingdom exists. It existed in creation. And as image bearers, it's stamped on our souls. That's why people write stories about such things. It gets better. The perfect kingdom is not just a fantasy, it's a reality. From the line of Judah, God would bring a good but flawed king over a good and prosperous people, yet flawed people. And that would point us to the perfect and unflawed king over a rescued and made perfect and unflawed kingdom of priests to God, spanning the entire earth in which all things are right and whole. So one of your greatest arguments against atheism is the fact that you can imagine a king in a kingdom. And because you can imagine it, that thought had to be birthed from somewhere. That's because it is a reality. Anselm of Canterbury. And that is to point us to the reality of a good and perfect king over a people who've been rescued and made perfect and made into priests to this God all over the world. So how can we obey this? What are some things we can take away from the life of Judah and the reality of God's kingship and His kingdom? A, I said I would say more about this, so here it is. Don't arrogantly assume God can't use you to change the world. When we talk about engaging domains of society, I tell this story to people. People automatically throw up, but I can't. I'm not. I'm not supposed to. That's not for me. And the reality is, who are you to write God's story before it's written? If God can take and preserve a kingly line through Judah, there's nobody in this room God can't use to change the world. 
It is the height of arrogance to assume that because you and I don't meet a cursed standard, that God can or won't use that to to save and rescue. God majors in saving the unsavable and empowering the weak. This is what Paul says. Remember, Paul's preaching from these stories. Remember? Paul's not making stuff up. He's preaching from these stories. So when he writes 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, he says this, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. God will put more on you than you can handle. The opposite statement is a lie. That's mixing up another passage of Scripture with a bad theological concept and coming out with poison. God will put more on you than you can handle. Paul just said that. We had so much on us, we thought we were going to die. And why? But that was to make us rely on ourselves, not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Listen, the reality is, God doesn't need your family lineage to use you to change the world. He doesn't need you to be on your A game. He doesn't need you to be perfect. God takes the weak and He despises the strong. God takes those that are not and He despises those that are. He majors in saving the unsavable and empowering the weak. Which, side note, this is why you preach the gospel to any and everybody who will give you an ear. Because God takes that powerful message and He yanks dead people into life. Judah. Paul. You and me. Second, and there's only three. Second, and, and this one is Bible study later on, and I really felt it was important to make this uh, thing here and, and, and present this to you so that as you study your Bible, and I hope you're studying your Bible, hoping you're reading. One of the things, guys, I'm just, just starting to know. We're small enough this morning, I feel like I can just be a teacher for a little bit. One of the things I'm discovering is, is folks just don't know the stories of their Bible. As I work on, on discipling and talking, we just we don't know what's here. We kind of the verse of the day mentality has pillaged our ability to read, right? Like none of us read the Chronicles of Narnia and read chapter 4 and try to make conclusions about the rest of the story, do we? Like if you read the anybody Chronicles, like you read Silver Chair, did you pick chapter 8? You know, and like, oh, that's amazing. And isolate it from the... No, you read the whole stinking book. Why? Because everything fits together. We need to know these because they all fit together. They're pointing us to God's rescue in Jesus Christ. And so we see God's work in history and we know how to draw the lines and understand. And so this point is for that, to help you begin to draw to the restoration because God's still at work bringing all things under the rule of Christ. And it's very important. So here it is. Number number two, we have to distinguish between Jew and Israel as a whole. The proper name Jew means belonging to Judah. This is why Jesus told the Samaritan woman that salvation is from the Jews, John 4.22 God's choice of Judah to bear the role of kingship and one day bring salvation through Jesus explains the divided kingdom after Solomon with the ten northern tribes having some 13 dynasties from 925 to 722 BC. This is right here in the text. You don't have to go read another book. It's right here. Some 13 dynasties between 925 and 722 BC contrasted with Judah who had guess how many dynasties? One. Rehoboam's foolish decision leads to the splitting of the kingdom. And there's the ten northern and Judah left all by its lonesome. And geez, we would think that might makes right, right? God rescues by power, right? So surely Judah would fall first. Nope. The ten northern tribes fall. Why? Because they're not Judah. And they don't worship the Lord. They don't trust the Lord. They worship Baal, Asherah, and all manner of other things. And Judah's standing there holding the line, being faithful. Being faithful. Being faithful. Even with bad kings, being faithful because God's the one who keeps the covenant. 
God's choice of Judah explains why the ten northern tribes are not clearly preserved, just like Judah's preserved. In 722 BC, the Assyrians take the ten northern tribes captive all over the world, and some don't show up much, even if, if at all, in history again. You want to know a little interesting piece of missions history? You ready for a little missiology? I'm going to throw a little study about our people group, which I can't say because it's recorded, going to go on the interwebs. But you know the people we work with in that country that's really hard? Do you know that people, you know what they say about themselves? This is their own history. You ready? This will blow your mind. They say that they're one of those ten tribes that was taken captive in 722 B.C. They have written history. Which is one of the reasons the language they speak and the written script of the language above that is so similar to the language in this book is because it came from there. Wouldn't it be just like God to rescue one of those ten northern tribes through a bunch of descendants of Judah through Jesus? Wouldn't that be just like God? And so we have to distinguish between Jew and Israel. This is going to help us when we come to the New Testament, distinguishing between those who are the faith of Abraham and not merely physically descended of Abraham. And Paul's going to make a big deal out of that. So when you read Paul, you're like, what is he talking about? That's what he's talking about. This is going to help us in our later interpretation of events and the restoration of all things. Like when we read things like Romans 11 and Revelation. Like what's God saying? And then finally, and this is where we're going to close. What can we take away? How can we obey? When we look at Judah, we need to respond in awe, wonder and praise, and be a living sacrifice. But you see, that's exactly what Paul does. We as Christians need to learn to respond in awe, wonder, praise, and becoming a living sacrifice. Paul finishes up one of his hardest chapters in the Bible in regard to understanding Israel, regarding salvation, election, Gentiles, and the like. In Romans chapter 11, he's finishing up this difficult chapter. And Paul, I'm sure, is quite clear. The problem is I'm the dunce. But I think I get it. I think I understand. But I want you to note what Paul does in response to this. What does Paul do in response to God's work in history? Well, he captures it for us in Romans eleven thirty one through chapter 12, verse 1. This is, Paul comes, he's... Israel, election, Gentiles, grafted in, and all this, like, you know, whoa, what in the world are you saying? Here's, here's what Paul does. Oh, the depths of the riches, wisdom, and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and inscrutable His ways. Exclamation point. He's shouting in his writing. He's praising. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who's been His counselor? Or who's given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. 12.1 I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. He just, he just called all those chapter 11 hard things mercies. He said, I appeal to you by them. Present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What's Paul's response? Worship. What does he call worship? Being a living sacrifice. Lay your life down. Because the God who raised up Judah can raise you up too. So therefore, live your life in such a fashion that you are a living sacrifice. All wonder, praise, being made a living sacrifice. Let me ask you, the Rivers Church, do you live in awe at the work of God in history? We're supposed to. This is supposed to blow our minds to the point that we bow down and give our lives up because we want God to work in us like that. Awe. Wonder. God gave us physical wonders around the world to draw our attention to amazingness. This is why some of us look at large mountains and are just absolutely captivated. And you hear the cracking of glaciers. And you see the immensity and the size of it and how small you are. God did those things to cause us to wonder. He worked in history to cause us to wonder and go, how could you do such a thing? Not in disbelief, but in sheer wow. 
He gave us these things to bring us to praise. And He defines praise as being a living sacrifice. Through Rivers Church, what I would say to you, the way we'll continue to reach the world and the way we'll continue to reach Roman Floyd County, plant other churches, continue to make disciples, plant other campuses, continue to engage our hard place, continue to serve our people, plant it all over the world, is by being living sacrifices, which Paul says is our worship. See, the reality is Judah's life was not his own. Your life is not your own. My life is not my own. There's one king, one hero, Jesus. And in Christ, I'm submitted to him. And when I seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, he does supernatural, awesome things. And our response is to be a living sacrifice who continues to stand in awe, wonder, and praise. And so you know what we're going to give you a chance to do this morning? We'll give you a chance to praise him. But I want you to recognize that doesn't stop with the song we sing. The song we sing is a prelude to walking out those doors and laying down your life as a living sacrifice to obey Him, to do what He says. And trust that if God can work in Judah, He can work in me. He brought us the King through Judah, and He will take me and use me as well. There is no thing God can't do in you and I if we will simply hear and obey. Believe that? I believe that. So let's pray and let's come and worship. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Judah. We thank you that you worked in the life of such people. Thank you that you brought us the king of the universe through Judah. Lord, I pray that you will take your word and make it a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. That you would truly instruct us on how to live, how to walk, how to make decisions tomorrow. How to live by faith and not by sight. There's all kinds of amazing things you can and will do. And I just pray you do them this morning. Lord, I pray that you would knock down walls of unbelief even in this moment. God, where there's doubt that you can work in us, I pray you would destroy that. Where there's unbelief in the Messiah, I pray that you would destroy that. Where there's reluctance to worship you jubilantly and joyfully, I pray you'd knock that down. And bring us into the full joy of walking with you in obedience and in worship and as living sacrifice. Lord, I pray against the enemy this morning in a spirit of a downness, a beat downness. I pray that you would destroy that and you'd lift our souls to make much of you. That you would captivate us for just a few minutes and we could rise out of some of the stuff that we have to dwell in. And that this morning there will be a few moments of just absolute joyous freedom in you to enjoy you today. Would you do that for us this morning? Lord Jesus, be magnified, be exalted, be lifted high, we pray.